1: Look at up. Listen, I'm watching
2: CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become
0: kind of a symbol. Welcome to Yeah Na Pesaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And this week we are joined by Terry Givens, who is a professor of political science at McGill University and the author of The Roots of Racism, The Politics of White Supremacy in the U.S. and Europe. Thanks for joining us, Terry.
1: Oh, It's my pleasure.
0: I guess just to begin with, what was the impetus for writing The Roots of Racism?
1: Well, really, it's a compilation of the research I've been doing since the late 1990s on the radical right and anti-immigrant politics. And, you know, really one of the things I've come to realize over the last few, you know, really five years or so is that we're seeing this conflation of immigration and racism so that immigrants are, are regardless of their background, are facing similar types of racism that we've seen throughout history. And one of the things that I really wanted to do is make sure that we had a touchstone from a historical perspective of, you know, why are we seeing the same kinds of attitudes and even, you know, the rise of anti-immigrant you know, far right parties on both sides of the Atlantic. And of course, I know it goes beyond that, but really my focus was, you know, the fact that we have these 400 years of history around racism and slavery and so on that are really interconnected.
0: Some might uh, characterize the book as being uh, critical yes. of uh, things, uh, <laughs> perhaps the, presenting some theory about race, uh, which is a topic that has come in for some. Uh, discussion in the United States and elsewhere lately. Could you contextualize historically the current moral panic amongst conservatives about critical race theory?
1: Absolutely. I mean, you know, there's, I would call it abject fear. And, you know, they're in a completely defensive position at this point, because what they're realizing is that as the United States and, you know, and other countries, as similar trends are happening, become more diverse, and people are, you know, I mean, really, in many ways, Obama epitomizes what you know their greatest fear. You, know, you have a, a black president who comes in, who's and frankly, you know, Obama was very moderate for a, you know even for a Democrat in the United States. He, you know, he he was very careful about how he pursued his policies and so on. And so, realistically, he he wasn't the extremist that people claimed he was. So, I mean, to put it in the broader context, though, you know, that we've had this long history in the U.S. And of course, it's very much linked with uh, Europe around immigration restrictions and trying to keep these countries basically fairly homogenous and of course in the 1960s that shifted in in the US and Canada and in Europe you saw the the increasing flows of migrant guest workers who were coming from places like Algeria and and uh, southern Africa you know the sub, I should say sub-Saharan Africa and the Middle East and so on and so you saw this increase in people of Muslim background and so the the panic amongst conservatives is that they're losing power and they're losing power to a minority that is growing faster in terms of, you know, just numbers and is having an impact on their ability to govern.
0: In the book, you discuss the concept of comparative race theory as opposed to critical race theory. Could you tell us what that is and how they differ?
1: So the the difference – so what I realized is I I was looking very closely at at critical race theory. And, you know, the problem with critical – it's not a problem, I should say. It's just what I saw – and really what I've been railing against in political science for pretty much my entire career is that we can't keep things within confined within borders, right? The United States is just one country of many that is grappling with a growing diverse population. And so comparative race theory is an approach that allows us to look beyond U.S. borders and say, okay, how does this? How these similar trends are? And really, it's a hypothesis. You know, we need to do this analysis. Is it similar in Canada? Is it similar in the U.K.? Is it similar in France? And you know, all along, throughout, throughout my career, people, well, you can't study this in France because there's no racism in France. Well, we know that's not true. <laughs> at least those of us who study this. And so. It's really pushing, you know, and as you know, I started off the book really pushing political science to say, this is not just an American issue. First of all, we have to acknowledge that racism is an issue. And then we have to acknowledge that it's not just a U.S. issue. And I can tell you right now, living in Montreal, it's not just a U.S. issue. It's not just a a European issue, really. But there are things that connect us throughout history, including the history of slavery and the way that our colonial ties have impacted things like immigration that we really need to grapple with. And I'm really pushing political science and, frankly, other disciplines to grapple more with the broader context of you know, immigration and colonialism and neocolonialism and how it's impacting the flows of people and impacting people's reaction to those flows.
2: Terry, in particular, why do you think that the discipline of political science has struggled so much with the concept of racism?
1: Because there haven't been enough of people like me and I'm African-American studying these things. I mean, realistically, that's a huge part of it is that we have a discipline that until the early 2000s wasn't even looking at uh, very closely, you know, voting behavior from a more diverse perspective. Everything, you know, we initially got to, okay, well, let's look at black and white voters well, you know, it's only been, say, in the last 10, 15 years that we've really looked closely at even Hispanic voters or, you know, uh, Asian voters. I have a good friend who's you know, been working on a project to actually you know, look at Asian American and Pacific Islander voters. And so we our discipline itself had to diversify in order for these issues to be really put front and center. And can
2: you explain the impact that the movements for racial equality and black civil rights have had on the development of political science? Has that been a allowed for an opening for the kinds of research you'd like to conduct?
1: Yeah, absolutely, but it's taken time. You know, I remember a couple of my colleagues from University of Michigan, Vince Hutchings and, and Nick Valentino were, were, wrote an interesting article back in the early 2000s about kind of these, these developments in the study of really focusing more on survey data but, you know, it, it's interesting how, it, you know, if you really look at, at these, the historical issues and actually, I have to mention Jessica Blatt's book about immigration, uh, political science and race. And, you know, she goes back to the the early 20th century and examines how political science really, you know, there was an initial uh, interesting kind of focus on race that was really more connected to the scientific racism and eugenesis and so on. And then there was just a complete, utter you know, and actually I have to give, you know, some other folks credit, Bob Vitalis and others who really dug into that origin origin story of political science and how it initially did really focus on race, but from a more, you know, scientific racism perspective. And then race just disappeared as an issue for about 50 years. And then it comes back during the civil rights movement. And so the civil rights movement was really critical in opening up the door again to a more uh, critical focus on race. And of course, you have the development later on of critical race theory that very deeply impacted uh, political science. But there's you know, lots of folks who were you know, basically trying to open that door for a while. And the, you know, the problem is it was really on the fringes And it still is to a certain extent. I mean, I remember back when I was, you know, in my early years as a political scientist in the late 90s, early 2000s, you know, being told that, you know, well, you know, that's just, these are fringe topics and, you know, they don't belong in the American Political Science Review, our our main journal and things like that. And so it's taken, you know, and to this day, I think that people, there are a lot of senior scholars who think that things like studying the issues of race are, are distractions or are on the sidelines. And I'm trying to you know, basically drag (laughs) these issues to the center and really help people to understand how it impacts everything. So everything, every, you know, I'm watching the local politics in uh, Montreal and, and Quebec, and it's, you know, you can see it there and people, it's very plain and clear. I mean, it's not like it's hidden. So um, these issues really if we don't look at politics from a perspective of how they're impacted by racism and the long history, you know, even here in Canada of Indigenous suppression and oppression, um, then you're not going to understand why you're getting the outcomes you're getting. Could you
0: speak to how and why uh, things like the Holocaust pose particular problems for the study of race by political scientists in Europe?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Because of course, you know, people will argue that. Because race was front and center in the Holocaust and people, the fact that people were being identified as Jews and not just Jews were were killed during the Holocaust, obviously, we know there's many other groups were part of that, you know, so that pushes back against this idea of, you know, doing a census. So I know in Germany, the census was, and in France, the census was was very controversial because of that history. And so it made it very difficult to, I mean, even to this day, to even track, you know, how many people, uh, how many Black people are there in Germany or in France, because we don't have that data. And so, you know, there's a lot of, again, I, I refer to some of my colleagues in this field, particularly in France, uh, who have really tried to find ways to, in, you know, in France, it's actually within their constitution that, you know, you can't, um, you know, define people by race. And so, and as we know, I want to make sure I make it very clear that race is a social construct, not a, a scientific or, or, you know, physical or uh, construct. It's, 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 you know, we know that basically all humans are the same once you get down to the, the level of chromosomes and DNA. But the social construct creates a situation where people who have a particular phenotype are treated differently. And that's, you know, the data is very clear on that. But I want to make clear that that does not mean that race is a real thing. It's race is something that is a social construct that is utilized to basically put people into certain categories. And so that whole history of the Holocaust is clearly something that, you know, has created a situation where people don't want to, you know, use uh, data, but that data is critical for doing things like proving systemic discrimination. So it's, and it's a bit of a conundrum and there's a lot of people who are working to try and figure out ways to get around that.
2: Exploring the roots of racism, Terry, your uh, book examines uh, several centuries of history and you Mm -hmm. consider how racism is linked to colonialism and the transatlantic slave trade. Could you elaborate uh, a little on that relationship?
1: So, we know that actually, I was recently in Portugal and was reminded of the fact that, you know, the Portuguese were responsible for, you know, taking four, about four million Africans from Africa to the New World, both the, you know, across the US and the Caribbean and, and South uh, Latin America. So, you know, particularly Brazil. And so, you know, the, the connections, those historical connections are important because there are relationships that still persist that go back to that time period. And that includes the fact that, you know, there's still, you know, basically you have Brazil that's, uh, you has a large population of African descent and that, you know, they are treated differently uh, depending on their skin tone and, and things like that. And of course in the U.S. we have that, that long history of the, the slave trade that led to, uh, you know, basically people from Africa uh, in you know, dire circumstances and even after the civil war you know basically we had the the you know, a short period of reconstruction and then an ongoing campaign that included the Jim Crow laws to this day, uh, mass incarceration that still impact people from these particular groups dis- disparately. And that disparate impact is something we have to pay attention to and look at the connections historically. You know, it's not enough to just say, well, you know, that happened 400 years ago or, or 200 years ago. We have to understand that the effects of those things are still being felt to this day. And so um, I can see it when I go to. To Portugal, and I see the you know African immigrants and and people of African descent who've come there because they happen to speak Portuguese, and and so there, there's so many ways that those those connections are still very much in play. And you know, you have Algerians in France because of that colonial history, right? It's not just because you know Algerians like France. So those those colonial histories are very much intertwined with how those people got to where they are and how they're being treated today.
2: And how do you think? race and racialization have changed following the end of chattel slavery in the 1800s?
1: Well, basically, you know, there was uh, different approaches to dealing with um, these, pop- you know, in the US, of course, you had a very large population of people of African descent. And um, as I mentioned, there was the, you know, Reconstruction period, and then You know, there was a period of terror, frankly, um, where uh, those in the South were terrorized by organizations like the Ku Klux Klan to be kept in their place, to be incarcerated, to be forced to work when they were incarcerated. And so many left. You had the Great Migration in the U.S. where so many left to go from the South to the North, including my own family members. Um, I had a grandfather who left Georgia to go to uh, Pittsburgh and Another, you know, my mother left Louisiana to go to Los Angeles to find work and so on. And, and many of those people left because they were, you know, it was, you know, partly, and I highly, highly recommend the book by Isabel Wilkerson, The Warmth of Other Sons, because it really explains how people were, you know, trying to leave a very difficult situation, which had, you know, at the end of slavery, you know, after Reconstruction, the Jim Crow laws and the inability to even send their children. You know, my mother only had an eighth grade education because she wasn't allowed to go. You know, she had to go to work. She couldn't go to high school. Um, and yet my father, who was up in Pittsburgh, you know, went on to high school and, and you know joined the military where and he and my mother met in Los Angeles. I mean, that's my personal story. But, you know, it, it, you can't escape all those connections and linkages that have impacted people. And, you know, I go to Europe and look at the, particularly... Um, the colonial period. And, you know, there's a direct line between the colonial period in uh, sub-Saharan Africa and Algeria in particular that led to people going to France. And then those people are discriminated against in terms of jobs and uh, the where they live. I mean, we have very stark residential segregation in France. And, you know, these are you know, you know, that they were raised as children to believe, well, I'm, I'm French. And so therefore, you know, liberté, égalité, fraternité. But then they, they get older and realize, you know, I can't get a job. I'm harassed by the police. And what does it really mean to be French? And so you see these things playing out in so many different ways.
2: The costs of racism have been dreadful. But I guess, who do you think benefits from racism? What does, what's the relationship uh, between these racialized practices and other uh, forms of social power, do you think?
1: Well, it's interesting. I, I refer to um, The Sum of Us by Heather McGee. You know, there's a whole economic theory that's, that's developing around these ideas because what we're seeing, you know, so it's, it's, it's a lot, it revolves, yeah, sorry, it revolves a lot around uh, political power. And not so much economic power, although political power and economic power go together. And so the beneficiaries of it are, are clearly people who feel like they they want to maintain a more homogenous society, and, and that's I think why you're seeing this panic amongst conservatives. And you know, and obviously, you know, I, I have to specify it's mostly white conservatives, not all, but mostly white conservatives. So basically, you have a situation. So I love the swimming pool example, where you know in the 1960s when Swimming pools. Yeah, you know, the the federal government says you have to desegregate your swimming pools. Well, rather than actually desegregate, they filled the pools in. You know, they shut down school systems. You know, does that in their economic benefit? No, but it is in their benefit in terms of wanting to maintain you know a pure you know group that wasn't going to be tainted by you know we don't want to swim you know with these black people or brown people or whoever. And so, off it's very hard often to find a strong economic rationale for some of the behavior, particularly if you read the, the book on Dying of Whiteness by Jonathan Metzl. If you think about the fact that we had hundreds of thousands of people in the United States who were willing to listen to a leader at the time who was telling them, you know, not to get vaccinated and don't believe this stuff, and, and who many who died and because they they just held on to this belief so a lot of this what's driving this is this beliefs of white supremacy of, of you know the, this idea that you, you can't trust these people who aren't you know with us I'm, I'm doing air quotes with my hands and you know this just hanging on to these beliefs that are literally killing people um, and it's not killing you know the people they want to be killed I mean there's a, a a quote that I, I have in, in my book from a woman, you know, we, Trump was supposed to hurt them, you know, not us. And so, you know, it's, it's hard to find a strong economic rationale for the behavior, these behaviors. It has more to do with, you know, maintaining political power. Um, I mean, you look at the everything from, you know, the gerrymandering and the, uh, you know, trying to keep uh, people of color from voting They've carved up districts and states just to make sure that, that people can't vote. Now, I can't say that's happening in Europe. Um, it's not. But what's happening instead is, you know, we have broader party systems where you have, you know, these far right parties that are on the rise. And the the fact that, you know, the for example, the Rassemblement in, in France, the Red led by Marine Le Pen is, is doing so well in the AFD in Germany, although it's really interesting to look at the rise of the Greens as well. You know, it's really upsetting the entire political system. I was just I'm in the process of writing an article or just kind of a commentary on what's happened to the right in uh, Europe. And but you can't talk about what's happening to the right without looking at the disappearance of the left. Not completely. Um, you know, they're in pow- power in Germany, but you know, the party socialist has has just been devastating France and the communist party has practically disappeared. And so there's these different dynamics that are happening in the U S you're seeing the Republican party, you know, we just had the speech by president Biden who is talking about, you know, authoritarianism and fascism on the rise in the Republican party. And, you know, we're seeing it in various ways. And obviously it's not, I don't think it's the vast majority, but certainly uh, enough to be pushing that that particular party in the direction of basically trying to keep people from voting and saying, you know, your vote doesn't count and that these elections are frauds because we didn't get the outcome we wanted. So that's where you're seeing these. And then, frankly, to me, it's very, you know, it's irrational, but it's this desire to maintain a system of power that has been in place for hundreds of years.
0: Uh, Terry, could you speak to the difference between white supremacy and white nationalism?
1: Yes. Thank you for asking that question. It's so funny because I had that uh, discussion with my publisher because they were asking, well, should the should it say white supremacy on the cover or white nationalism? So the, the reason I stuck with white supremacy, and I actually referenced some articles on that in the book, is that white nationalism to me is this desire. And to a lot of us, those of us who study this is the, the desire to create a white state. You know, that's what you had, for example, in South Africa white supremacy is a bigger system. It's that is very tied into capitalism. And I should have mentioned that, you know, when you're asking the question earlier about the economics, because it, this is all, you know, white supremacy is very much tied into to capitalism in the sense that if you look at um, the inequality that has been on the rise in, you know, in the US and Europe and across the board, pretty much, you know, that has a lot to do uh, with the, the linkages to white supremacy in the sense that the laws and the uh, tax policies, and you know, who gets uh, bailouts, who gets loans, all these things—you know—who gets venture capital? You know, I lived in Silicon Valley for a long time. You know, the people who are getting it—it's all part of a system. Of basically, I, I consider Silicon Valley—it's just you know one white guy giving money to his the, his friends, kids, so they can start a company. (laughs) You know, I mean, basically it's it's horrendous when you look at the numbers. I think 3% of venture capital goes to women. So it's a sexist thing as well, but also, you know, 0.03% of all venture capital goes to to black women. Um, And, you know, to to black people overall, I think it's like 1%. I mean, the percentages of this huge amount of wealth that's being tossed around in the venture capital world is, is going to all white males. And if you look at the Fortune 500, you know, all these things, you know, you can see that all the the, the concentration of wealth is very much, you know, in, uh, you know, the, the white side of the, the ledger. And, you know, we can point to a few, you know, black billionaires, but they you know, just in terms of the, the transfer of wealth, generational wealth, you know, again, the some of us, Heather McGee gets into a lot of this, you know, it's just been very difficult for African Americans in the U.S. and even if you you know look at you know, immigrants and people of color in Europe to you know to be able to build up any wealth.
2: The book ranges across you know a range of different territories, and you're at pains to develop a comparative study. I did notice that Australia or the Australian example is referenced in the book, especially in terms of articulating how uh, race and racism operates on a global level. Can you say a little bit about uh, the global Mm -hmm. color line, how that's developed and how it manifests in the 21st century?
1: Right, yeah, and I think at some point I'm going to have to elaborate on that because it really pulls in the, you know, kind of international relations side of it, and I really recommend um, Robert Vitalis, also known as Bob Vitalis because he's a good friend. His work has really looked at this, you know, kind of from a historical perspective, perspective very closely. And, you know, you think about places like Australia that were colonies, but then it's funny because Australia and Canada, of course, have so much in common in the sense that, you know, they were colonies, you know, people came and, you know, the Indigenous were pushed to the side and and in many, since, you know, a sense of genocide in many ways. And from not just from the colonial colonialization itself, but from disease, various you know, things that impacted these populations and decimated these populations. And so and then you had, you know, the it's funny because the US, Canada, and Australia all had these white focused immigration policies. And that's why I think it's important to, you know, talk about the conflation of immigration and race. Because you go back to the nineteen twenties when these theories around eugenics and Scientific racism, where you know, touting the superiority of, of white people, and even you know coming up with definitions, and this impacted immigration policies in in Canada and in uh, Australia, just like it did in the U S., where there were you know you had white Canada policies, you had a white Australia policy. In the U S., we just called you know national origins quotas, but basically the goal was to make the immigration flows more white and less Catholic and so on. (laughs) They didn't, you know, the Catholics, you know, Southern Europeans, Italians, you know, they were also discriminated against. And, you know, up until the 1960s, you know, that was basically the law of the land. And then you saw the changes in Canada, Australia, and the U.S. And so this conflation of immigration and race is important to understand because our immigration policies were driven by this idea of white supremacy in terms of intelligence, in terms of, you know, capacity and what we wanted in to be coming into our countries. Now, the U.S. had a conundrum because, of course, you already had this large black population that couldn't, you know, you couldn't do much with it except oppress it. And so that's why you get the Jim Crow laws and so on. But, uh, you know, there's a, a strong linkage between the U.S., Canada and Australia in terms of those immigration policies and their connection to race.
0: Terry, what forms of political representation do you think best allow for anti-racist policies to be enacted?
1: So I think if you look at, it's interesting, I've looked back at the 1960s when you saw these important, and actually in the UK, it goes back to the the late 1950s. And I've actually looked at this in my book, Legislating Equality. You know, why do you get policies that are focused on anti-racism or anti-discrimination? And a lot of it has to do with, you know, kind of trade offs So you have politicians on the left who, you know, part of it has to do with the fact that left politicians for a long time saw the potential for these diverse communities, whether they're black or Asian, or whatever they may be as potential voters. Whereas you know conservative parties, although they may bring these people into the party, they don't necessarily see them as a natural consist- constituency. You know, there's a whole issue of you know left versus right, and focus on more social programs versus you know tax cuts for the wealthy. You know, all these kinds of things that play into it. You know, I think basically it's having, which is what you know we're seeing a pushback against, is having a situation where. People have the opportunity to vote for politicians who are going to improve their social welfare, who are going to vote for the kinds of policies that are going to help them uh, build wealth and, and you know, buy houses, things like that. And so that tem- you know, there, that's where there's a big divide, and that divide has only widened between left and right in recent years in terms of the kinds of policies. But you know, I think in the 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 interesting thing to me and I it, we're still in the middle of it so I I, I can't fully process exactly how this is going to play out but you know in Europe you know I've been talking since you know the early 2000s about the fact that we've seen this neoliberal approach that you know is for more markets you have the rise of you know the Bill Clinton and the Gerhard Schröder and Tony Blair that are you know more you know that they're left-leaning politicians who are more market oriented and therefore their policies aren't necessarily going to help the bottom line of the, the, you know, most low income folks in the country. But you've also seen, I think, a lot of focus on, you know, things like housing, and how do you improve the situation for people? And how do you, you know, even education? And so, you know, obviously, if we can kind of Think about policies that lift all boats, and see this is why I think the economic har- argument is hard to make because if you know the problem is and that 's why heather McGee's book is so important is a lot of people on the right see this as a zero sum game. you know if you're gaining i'm losing, and that's not how it works I mean the reality is if, if i'm if i'm more intelligent and i 'm gaining we have more productivity then you know all boats rise, and we have to be willing to get that word out. And, you know, on the left, we haven't been very good. And, you know, and I put myself in this camp, we haven't been very good about putting, you know, those kinds of ideas out into the public marketplace. I think in the 60s and the 70s in the US, when you had you know, strong, relatively, compared to now, strong welfare state, you know, you've had strong advocates for that. And we need those strong advocates to be out there speaking for the people who are seeing their you know, wages stagnate, and we're in a time period because of the way the market is working that low-income workers are seeing their wages increase because they have to increase. They've been stagnant for so long, and they can't afford, you know, you, the basic things. And so, you know, I think we're going to enter a time period, hopefully, where we'll see more political power coming from those groups who are most hurt by things like huge tax breaks to the wealthy and things like that. And you know that. Uh, you know, left politicians will go back to their roots that you are seeing a stronger support for things like unionization. Unions, I think, are going to be really important in the future for making sure that we have policies that, you know, are helping, you know, working class people. So I do see some twinges of hope within um, what is a very bleak uh, political landscape, but it's going to take a lot of work. And I think political science has a role to play in you know, making sure that we put these issues front and centre.
0: Well, we'll have to take a twinge of hope. Terry, thanks so much for joining us. If people want to read more of your work, your website is terrygivens.com and you are on Twitter at Terry Givens. Thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you so much. This was fun. Well,
0: Andy, that's our show. We'll see you next week. See you then.
2: No crime, no time. Fix Victoria's bail laws now.
1: Prisons are bursting at the seams with poor people. Istra Melbourne is calling on the Victorian government to release unsentenced people on remand from Victorian prisons. First Nations people are 3% of the population yet represent 29% of the general prison population.
2: 89% of First Nations women entering prison are unsentenced.
1: ISJA Melbourne is asking you to sign the No Crime, No Time petition,
2: which can be found on ISJA
1: Melbourne's Facebook page. Indigenous Social Justice Association Melbourne is a 3CR supporter.